You're tuned into A Kind of Harmony. In this podcast, we're looking to transcend the physical limitations of daily life. In each episode, we speak with a different practitioner who uses sound as a tool or method for connection, transcendence, and healing. We're your hosts, Julia Edek and Amanda Harvey. In this episode, we spoke with Andrea Young. Andrea is a multidisciplinary artist, writer, healer, and gardener living in Pont in Quebec. She founded Young Ascension Hypnosis in 2015, and since 2020, the Mystical Order of the Infinite Fountain, her own hypnosis lineage and school. Her work swims at the intersection of art, earth, spirit, and how finding trance in that space can elicit or preserve an experience of home. She is anchored by lifeways of the circumpolar and Pacific regions and is of Ukrainian and Mohawk heritage. She was raised on Treaty 4 lands surrounding the Quapel Valley in the Saskatchewan prairies. We were curious to speak with Andrea about her practice as a hypnotherapist. We discussed the voice as a portal to the subconscious and the relationship between sound and the trance state. Dear Andrea, please start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your practice. My name is Andrea Aya Young, and I am a hypnotherapist and healer, gardener, artist, writer, educator, and I'm currently living in the township of Potton in Quebec, Canada. Can you introduce us to hypnosis as a practice and a therapeutic method? How do you do it? And do you see your work uh, as any kind of part of a lineage or a tradition? A little bit about hypnosis as a general practice. Basically, hypnosis is a form of trance-based healing that uses the voice and vocabulary to initialize healing within a client's subconscious and unconscious mind. Even those terms subconscious and unconscious seem less appropriate or relevant to me these days because I no longer understand the human being as this sectioned sort of entity. (laughs) But basically, hypnosis, or we call it hypnotherapy because it just points to hypnosis used for therapeutic gains rather than entertainment or comedy. So hypnosis, the way I do it, (laughs) is quite a bit different or I would say I'm an outlier in the field to the point of not even really being part of the hypnosis world anymore. I align myself more so with a tradition that's more innately part of the human experience, I would say. So if we understand trance as a mind state that, or again, not even mind, mind, body, spirit, (laughs) however you understand it, all things all at once. If we understand trance as an experience that we can all access and do access without effort, my practice is one that cultivates trance on purpose to feel better, (laughs) to feel happier, to feel more lightness, to feel more openness, more joy, more connection, all those nice things that humans in today's 
globalized society are lacking in, it seems. So in terms of, you know, I don't exist in a vacuum, nor would I ever (laughs) purport to have gotten to this place without amazing teachers, elders that have really held my hand and guided me and inspired me and continue to and always will. In terms of hypnosis as my practice, I don't really have a hypnosis teacher. I did a training with the Hypnosis Institute of Saskatchewan with my friend Heather Rodriguez many years ago. But my practice has since really diverged and been more so influenced by things outside of hypnosis. So I practice Vajrayana Buddhism, which is also known as Tantric Buddhism. And people definitely have a preconceived notion of what the word Tantra means. But basically, it just means that the body and the earth are our portals inward and our greatest teachers. And then also, I've been practicing different forms of meditation for 20 years about. But even before that, spontaneously meditating as a child with a sort of fractured household life. And predominantly right now, my study is in Vajrayana Buddhism with Dharma Ocean. And also studying with Jordan Witten, who is a Taoist healer, therapist, doctor, wizard. And that's been a few years now, but I'm still just scratching the surface with it. But Chinese medicine has always been influential, Taoist and Chinese medicine. And I've studied many forms of martial arts, depending on who are the best teachers that are in the remote place I'm living, basically. Yeah, and I also studied transcendental meditation, and that's sort of been like a very reliable daily practice for over a decade now, because it's a really sweet and easy meditation form. To add to that, I consider a lot of authors and spiritual teachers sort of elders or gurus of mine that I like really lean into whenever I need either more inspiration or just like... I need my faith renewed, you know? So in terms of those people that actually influence my day-to-day practice, it would be people like Robin Wall Kimmerer, Starhawk, Wolf Dieter Storl. I just started reading Richard Wagamese, who is blowing my mind and really grounding me and helping me find a connection and a way back to my Mohawk heritage and also helps me to see the land I'm living on through the eyes of the people that traditionally cared for this land, which is a necessary step for all Canadians to take (laughs) moving forward. So how is this approach to hypnosis, to trance, to hypnotherapy different from the preconceived idea that many people have, this kind of mind control that you would see in sci-fi movies or on stage shows where people are walking around like chickens. How is what you do different than this? Well, (laughs) I'll bring it back to my uh, 13-year-old nephew that sort of just really started to understand that I do hypnosis for a living and started feverishly texting me like so can you like make people do what you want I have a bit of a theory that there's actually a systematic oppression of things like hypnosis by the powers that be whether it's literally the CIA (laughs) or like because there's still hilarious and ridiculous portrayals in the media about hypnosis. I was watching (laughs) Sherlock (laughs) and at one point the season finale there's this whole like staged sequence of events that needs to take place or takes place to solve this crime and it's like a hypnotist jumps out from behind a corner on the street snaps his fingers and goes sleep and sort of like shoots hypnosis at someone you know and That is, to me, 
a plot device and lazy writing. It's like you can just imagine like a bunch of sci-fi writers in their writer's room at like 4 a.m. being like, damn it, we have to finish this series, you know? <laughs> like, what are we going to do? Oh, I know, hypnosis. And the thing is, like, I could do the things that people do in show hypnosis. I'm choosing not to because I it's just not where my life is taking me. But they are using trance. And if you speak to anyone that's been hypnotized in a stage hypnosis, they feel incredible after, right? Because they have been in a trance state, which is a very relaxed and focused state. However, so the way it's been portrayed by either the government manufacturing consent through the media or manufacturing distaste through the media, this to me is like portraying hypnosis in the exact opposite capacity that it truly is. Like for me, the more I work with an individual, the more agency is returned to them over their own experience, over their own mind. So if I have a client that's been working with me for 500 hours, they can, when we're working together, pause me and be like, give me a little bit more time with that. Give me a little bit more time to experience the sensations that are running through my body or the images running through, you know, the theater of my mind right now. Like, give me a sec, you know? When people first come to me, they have a usually a vague idea of what they want to see changed, which I help them toward. But after they've been working with me for a long enough time, it's a co-creation and it's like the writing of a narrative together. And I've had clients say, yeah, it's like watching a movie of your own life, but Andrea is the director and the narrator. And that is how it is at first. But as we evolve together and we're in that space together enough and the client sees that you can pinpoint topics or issues that you want to work on they come with like a laundry list for me and are like I want to work on the way my mind spirals right before bedtime and then it wakes me up and I want to work on my habit of running and I want to like substitute my like running for drinking three times a week you know what I mean so it's like you can start to really structure your life in a way that feels good to you and I just am the guide so it evolves in this way that I'm doing less and less honestly so I sometimes use the metaphor of me holding the reins of a team of horses for you at first and sort of teaching you how to do it, teaching the client how to do it. And then over time, I can hand the reins over to you and I'm just there with you. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> it definitely does. But I wanted to also maybe ask a little bit about self-hypnosis then. Is this something that anyone has the power to do to themselves with a little bit of training? A question that I asked on the first day of my hypnosis training was, what's the difference between hypnosis and meditation? Because I had already been practicing Vipassana and TM and Qigong and other meditative practices for a long time. And for me, meditation sort of skims the top layer of pond scum. And hypnosis, because we use an external guide and vocabulary, we can sort of use a dart gun to cut through the murky waters to the bottom of the pond, you know? Eventually, once you know what that trance feels like, and you hopefully have a meditation practice, or you start to notice trance where it occurs naturally in your life, because it does for everyone. And two of the best hypnagogic states that we are naturally in at different times in every day is like, in the morning when you first wake up, and you're still in that murky place between wake and dreaming, and then again at night. But we feel trance when we're dancing, when we're driving on a route that we know really well or on a highway. We feel it during great sex. We feel it sometimes even just, you know, singing to a baby. So if you start to recognize places where there are meditative or trance-like qualities already in your life, you can start to pay attention and 
cultivate it further and deepen it for yourself. A meditation practice will always help how you experience hypnosis and vice versa. It's not about accomplishment or it being better, better, faster, stronger, you know, but it's about like harnessing it or conjuring trance for yourself. So to me, I think of it as like dropping in, you know, and this is sort of a co-opting of psychedelic language. But to me, trance is psychedelic state. It's the original psychedelic state because it's psychedelics without an external substance. It's just you. So if you get used to and get comfortable with and get playful with trance and hypnosis and meditation and those states as they naturally occur, then you can harness them and conjure them at any time. So that being said, a practice of self-hypnosis can happen as you're falling asleep at night or first thing in the morning. And this is why a lot of spiritual teachers tell you to do your affirmations or pray in the morning, right? Or at night before bed. And I just feel that it's like my job in this lifetime to like name that thing and to point it out to people. Beautiful. Within your work as a healer, as a hypnotherapist, you have a number of different practices. You do group hypnosis for the community, you write, you teach, you make audio recordings, collaborate with musicians, you do hypnosis uh, virtually, online, also in real life, you make art. Can you discuss some of these different applications of your work and this craft you have and how it varies depending on the different medium you're working in. I just read this quote in the book Embers by Richard Wagamese that is, if art is not spiritual, it suffers from human limitations. And that really just cut to the heart of the issue for me. I made art before I started doing hypnosis, but I always struggled to put it out into the world unless I was in school and I had <laughs> real-time punishment. Um, but I'm really happy to be moving back towards making art and collaborating with hypnosis as the – or not even hypnosis, but trance or healing trance as – the sort of backbone to my work because in part I've just had more um, interesting and deep experiences since starting hypnosis but it has allowed me to sort of retroactively see this thread of continuity from a really young age like I would say around puberty or entering into adolescence. I've always been interested in art forms of all kinds that incorporate spirituality or trance or both, hopefully. So even as a kid growing up in Saskatchewan, like Saskatchewan is very white, very conservative, or the predominant culture is very white. You know, it's almost 50% Indigenous people. My world was boring, you know? So... I was always interested in Hindu and Buddhist mythologies and stories, and I still have a great respect, especially for the traditions of India and Hinduism, because even though India was colonized, they never lost this ancient practice, right? Like, there's not a billion people practicing Zoroastrianism, you know? Whereas with Hinduism, it's this beautiful, colorful mythology that stretches back so far, you know, to the earliest settlements of humankind that we're aware of, the earliest large-scale city or urbanized plumbing-having settlements. So as a 12-year-old, I just got really into like henna and mendi and Indian music. And as a kid in Saskatchewan in like a really small city, I just sort of 
learned about the world through books and art about my own culture being Ukrainian on my mom's side and my dad's lineage a little bit less so then more so now which is Mohawk and then also just other people's religions and spiritual practices and even so having grown up in a fractured household with intergenerational trauma and undiagnosed mental illness because the 90s my escape was through meditative forms yoga buddhism qigong and then just running away to raves and what happens at a rave when you're high on mushrooms or mdma as a 15 year old you're in a really beautiful deep trance with your friends and in a safe space and moving your body and enjoying the body of youth, right? And then even after engaging with the rave scene, the rave scene in Saskatchewan, by the way, has always been amazing, or at least since the 90s, and super safe and warm and community-oriented. But a lot of the people that came up in that scene are also dancers of different forms. Like they run dance companies or a few of us actually studied Kathak, which is like a traditional Indian dance form, like from North India, well, mostly North India. And it retells through the body Hindu and Muslim mythologies and religious truths and love songs and love songs to God. And in (laughs) the moment we're in culturally a little blonde girl from Saskatchewan doing Indian dance would be frowned upon or judged quickly. But through that form, I learned literally how to count and do math because the Indian way of doing math is cyclical. And just showing me that as like a 17, 18 year old and showing me the beauty of a religion, because I grew up pretty secularized, like many Canadians, I think, probably most North Americans. And the world tends to veer towards secularization these days, either secularization or radicalization, where you aren't exposed to much other than your orthodox religion, right? So to be able to explore oneself and literally the potential gave me hope, because As a traumatized youth in Saskatchewan, I had very little hope for a greater life for myself unless I was at a rave (laughs) or learning about the greater world and other cultures and other cultures' spiritual practices. So trance for me, it's the key to the creative work that I do. You know, healing has almost become an oversaturated buzzword. So I'm always searching for like, new words, new vocabulary for the things I'm trying to describe. But it's like, it's really just comes down to like living a nice life, right? If you can, you know, if I can, as a 38 year old, go to a rave and be like pretty much sober and drop into a trance to enjoy the music and stop thinking about my to-do list, that's living a better life for me. If I can do the same thing on a hike or while I'm collecting eggs from the chickens in the morning or cooking a meal for my loved ones, that is a healing life or a healed life or enlightened life. And like, you know, we think of enlightenment even as like some glowing beam coming out of the head, coming out of the crown while you sit on top of a mountain cross-legged. But to me, enlightenment is just having a lightness in your experience, you know, not bracing for impact for another fucking trauma, right? If I'm making creative work, it's gonna be those things. Even if I'm making work about something dark or political, it's going to be pointing towards hope because probably the greatest practice of my life is cultivating hope for myself, first of all, (laughs) because we all experience ourselves first of all and we all are born and die alone. So I've truly just like fought so hard in my life to cultivate hope in every circumstance. And I think holding space for that, even during 
fucking fascism or dystopia or <laughs> environmental chaos. Holding space for that hope allows others to fight for their own hope. Definitely. Okay, well, on the topic of hope, cultivating hope, maybe planting these seeds of hope into the subconscious minds of others, what can you say about the role of your voice in the hypnotic practice? Do you think about it? Is it important to you? Do you train the voice or the speech in order to be hypnotic? More than training the voice like a musician would or singer would, I almost think of it as the word channeling or conjuring arises for me, but it's almost acting in a way or taking on a character. And it's not disingenuous, it's part of me. But when I'm doing hypnosis, I'm dropping in to that trance space as well. And when I first started hypnosis as a practice and seeing clients, I didn't recognize like, oh, my better sessions are when I'm also in a trance or when I feel safe, right? Until I started doing like three hour long, crazy, shamanic, shaking <laughs> hypno sessions with pals of mine who were also healers in their own right. And I realized after a time that I would have these sort of positions my body would go into or things my body would start doing that I've since kind of have been illuminated by other healers that I've talked to or just through observing myself that helped me to kind of use my whole body, I guess, as a, you know, a vessel or a satellite or an antenna for the healing to come through me. But in that, my voice is affected. So one of the things that I noticed is that in my old home, I had this little red rocking chair that I would sit on and I would rock gently when I was doing what's called an induction, which is the beginning part of hypnosis, where you're essentially like taking them down and in. You're sort of meditating them down and into themselves. So I didn't even realize that I was using this rocking chair on purpose every time so that I could rock in it. In a somatic experiencing session with my friend uh, Jory Kashane, who's an amazing healer, artist, in her own right, we were doing a somatic experiencing session and I was at her place and I was sitting in a rocking chair that I chose to sit in and she pointed it out to me and she was like, what else is like a rocking chair? And I was like, oh yeah, okay. Like a hammock, being rocked in your mother's arms, a swing, things I've always loved because they calm the nervous system. I also noticed that I would do this thing of like drawing a spiral on the back of my hand with my pointer finger, my right index finger. And the thing about hypnosis that's like still so mysterious but beautiful is that it relaxes and focuses, right? So in neuroscience, we understand mind states as either sort of activated and alert or relaxed and calm. But the beautiful thing about hypnosis is that you are utilizing both of those states simultaneously for whatever purpose you want, right? I think the idea that body, mind, and spirit are separate things has completely collapsed in on itself for me. And I hope society will get there real quick because it'll catalyze our next, like the next plateau of humanity, I think needs to like collapse those borders and barriers between the body-mind connection. It's like, no, your, your mind is in the body, right? Your spirit is in the body. There's no like intellect and spirit, right? Or like heart and mind or spirit and mind. There's no separation between these. We need all of them. If you haven't eaten or slept, your spirit's going to feel like shit. <laughs> if you observe a toddler, you can see this clearly. Once I feel safe to be in trance with my client, there's parts of my heart or my character and therefore by extension my voice that arise or that are able to come out 
that simply do not come out in my normal waking life. Unless maybe I'm dealing with a toddler or chilling with a toddler, you know, like I can be so tender during hypnosis in a way that I almost never do because I have a trauma history and it doesn't in my waking life almost ever feel safe to me, for me to become this sort of tender, mothering version of myself. But when I am in that hypnotic state, I can be working with an almost stranger and I feel safe to use this sort of way of speaking that feels like this like <laughs> primordial mothering energy. And I love that for me. and <laughs> I love that for my clients. But I'm not at a place yet in my waking life that that voice can arise. And it's not like I'm putting on an accent or <laughs> like it's not a performance, but it's how my voice comes through me when my nervous system feels safe enough and strong enough and of service enough to allow it to move through me in that way. Totally. Well, I mean, even as a, a healer, I mean, you must be able to establish a boundary between who you are when you're not healing and who you are when you are healing, I think. Would you agree? <laughs> I agree to a point. It's learned, you know? I think like any person, healer, non-healer, or someone who identifies or has been chosen by the healing path or not, boundaries are always going to be something that we learn through social interaction. And if you grow up with like horrible boundaries or mental illness in your household or a narcissistic parent or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Or if you experience that as you grow in the world, boundaries are a, a practice, you know? Like, I think I was a real try hard when I first started hypno. I was so curious and like fascinated that I was like instantly obsessed, but I also feel like I used to just be a human sponge, you know? And it was a lot harder for me to turn it off. but. I think at this point in my life, I'm just more observant of my energy being drained and taking on the energy of others, which is in no small part why I'm living on a remote farm now. It's still a collective. There's still a lot of people around all the time, but I have the woods that I can go walk into and like shake off any residues of other people's problems <laughs> or moods or energy, you know? Psychic boundaries are a kind of boundary that exists too. And as a society, we're bad at it. I wanted to talk a little bit more about this kind of energy exchange or this kind of taking on of other people's energy and the role that listening plays in hypnosis or what's like what you've described so far as really more about the energy that you're giving, what you do for people, how maybe they can do it to themselves eventually. But what, if at all, role does listening play or receiving? Well, as I was sort of alluding to the, the melting of perceived boundaries between body, mind, spirit, I think we also need to begin to melt the borders between senses. So especially during the last years of the pandemic, we know that if you lose your sense of smell, you're going to lose your sense of taste, right? And it's nearly impossible to separate the two. And I think that can also be said for the rest of the senses and perceptions. And if we think of having a sixth sense or a spiritual sense of some sort, that informs my listening more than my ears. I actually am quite hard of hearing and have a broken pupil. So I'm sort of off kilter all the time. There's times again when I'm in trance where I'll make a suggestion to my client or create a visual image for them that is symbolic of what we're working on. At one time I was so in trance and connected both to them and to whatever was happening inside their imagination 
that I felt like I was listening to their whole person. I was listening to their sixth sense or their imagination. And in this moment, I suggested that a flock or a murder of crows flew overhead. After the session, they were like, when you suggested the flock of crows to fly over, they were already there for me. I feel that I was psychically listening, if that makes sense. And those borders between I am me, I am I individually sitting in my chair, and you are you having your experience sitting in your chair, they start to melt. It's almost as though I'm receiving a question from them of like, is it safe to release this here? And without saying it, you know, I'm hearing that from their being. My being is saying, yes, it's safe to release that here and I'll start, you know? So I think that's a capacity in which my entire being is listening. And I'm definitely seeing something and I'm definitely often seeing what is happening in the theater of their own mind within the theater of my own mind because my eyes are often closed throughout the hypnosis too generally i can just feel them descending into the internal space that sounds like some pretty deep listening to me (laughs) love it yeah yeah (laughs) Okay, I wanted to ask you about what's going on for you while you're in the hypnotic state and about your own trance. And I think you already answered it. But if there is anything else you want to mention about that, what's going on for you? I think, I mean, even like friends of mine still tease me that (laughs) the good things that exist in my life are because I've hypnotized someone. And I think there's like... Sometimes if people hear me sort of orating (laughs) on hypnosis or my experience, it's like, wow, this lady, she really has her shit together, you know? But trance has greatly affected and helped my life in this waking world. I think when you open yourself up to this like sort of other layer of perception and existence, you also open yourself up to the demons that lie there, right? So you might face more challenges and those demons are sneakier the stronger you get. Like they wanna take you down. So my life has a tendency (laughs) to move through cycles of brightness and ease and then like deep, deep, challenges and darkness and that's where that hope I fought for and fight for comes into play so the Persephone myth comes up for me the goddess of vitality that brings life to the plants and to the crops descends into hell for six months of the year and as someone that grew up in Saskatchewan where six months of the year is under snow and cold and minus 40 That really resonates, and I think that this really resonates as a healer and as someone who feels most of the time very feminine. I've come to a place in my life where when I'm staring down the barrel of a hard cycle, I'm sort of just like, let's go, you know? Like, I'm like, okay, I know this is going to be challenging, I know that challenges to my ego and to my identity and to my personhood and maybe even to my physical reality are going to arise in this moment and like buckle up. Because I know or because I have faith that on the other side of that, I will be propelled, sort of shot from the underworld into a state of more lightness, more ease, more connection, more love, more appreciation for self and for my experience. That is so inspiring. That's not often what we hear when we're talking about wellness, you know? (laughs) Like, yeah, I think it's really uh, powerful to hear you put it like this. Now, we've already talked quite a bit about trance and trance state, but I wanted to just see what your thoughts are about the relationship 
between sound and trance. Obviously, your voice being in a hypnosis session, the trance giver, the guiding voice that brings people into the trance state. I know you also mentioned this kind of dissolving of the boundaries between the senses, but what do you think about the relationship between trance and sound? And do you think this is like a particularly effective medium for entering into this trance? Absolutely. I mean, there's the, I think, still apt phrase, all you need is the sound of my voice. And a lot of my sessions are done over the internet, as we said. And that's because after the first consultation component and induction, your eyes are closed. And you can be in a trance state with your eyes open, of course. And I actually want to start making some recordings that allow people to have their eyes open and their bodies functional while in trance and listening to my voice. So I think it would be really great to be doing your chores or making art or sewing or knitting or whatever it is that people do, gardening, while listening to hypnosis and just helping people, again, holding the reins for people on that other level of like not being in a seated, comfy, cozy chair, but moving around, moving through the world in that trance. I think that's like a a nice challenge for me to like move toward. You know, I have some musician friends that agreed my voice is dorky. And I've had other friends, we decided my voice is like a clarinet, if we're to name something. You know, I love to sing, but I'm not a great or wonderful singer. I've always been curious about like how much we can do with little. And I think for me, hypnosis is gorgeous because it uses the voice, which is contained within me, right? So I don't need anything to do my work, right? I just need a way for that person to hear me. There are some people in this world that have worked with me enough and that trust me enough that like if we were at a party and I looked at them a certain way across the room in a way that suggested like drop into yourself or if we had some kind of like understood code word or code glance or code symbol or movement of the body that could maybe work. But I have to emphasize here, which I should have actually said when we we're talking about sci-fi, is that you can't hypnotize people that don't want to be hypnotized unless they're in a compromised state. And coming back to spooky CIA things, like even if we look at like MKUltra and like the tests that were done on people to understand consciousness during the Cold War, they gave people acid to try to use as a truth serum and mind control. They also starved them and starved them of sleep and essentially tortured them and utilized hypnosis while they were in that damaged state, right? And somehow that's the thing that has persisted through the media, that it's mind control, right? Simultaneously, currently... We're seeing all this great work coming back and we're restarting and jumpstarting the psychedelic revolution that began, but was in full force during the Nixon administration, which he then saw the power in and repressed. By extension, hypnosis was sidelined as well. The joke now with my inner circle of my practice is that like, I'm the psychedelic, but really, you're the psychedelic, right? Like, our minds have the capacity to be psychedelic. Like, what is more psychedelic than dreaming? We have all of these magic potions circulating within us at all times. And if we just learn how to respect and harness them, our lives can be heaven on earth. Our lives can be utopic.
Okay, last question. It's a pretty abstract one. Through sound, what is hidden and what is revealed? What is hidden? I mean, I feel that in Montreal, in my apartment, I live on Park Avenue, which is a busy street. And during COVID, it got so quiet. I think sound and static and sonic chaos points to psychic chaos. But we don't listen to that, you know? Like, as humans, we just, like, learn to numb it out or ignore, and it turn it into, like, a jumbled white noise. Like, the mind is amazing in its ability to focus through bullshit. But that bullshit's going somewhere, you know? Like, that psychic chaos and that sonic chaos is still hitting your nervous system. In 2008, the human species became an urbanized species, meaning we hit the tipping point over 50% of most humans in the world now live in urban centers. And that has never happened before on the scale, right? And so for all of the time that humanity has existed, we've just become an urbanized species, right? And with us, many animals, right? So we're in this blip of mutation. And we're also in that blip of mutation with screens. And if you think about it, there would have been a mutation plateau with pen to paper. And that one would have gone a lot slower because it was cave paintings and then it was chiseling into rock and then it was the printing press and then everyone was still illiterate. You know what I mean? And we still depended on priests to read us our scriptures. All of this has accelerated, right? Including the noise on the street. That to me is pointing towards the chaos that is being shot at our nervous systems at all times. We're surrounded by noise. We're surrounded by psychic noise. And even if you live in a cute little apartment in Montreal, which is a small city, I hear my neighbors, who mostly I love. Sometimes I hear conflict, sometimes I hear sex, sometimes I hear partying, sometimes I hear fights. To me, that's not going nowhere, right? It's going somewhere, it's hitting us. My being is being perceived. And just because I have the ability to focus past it, doesn't mean that I should all the time. No wonder we have widespread exhaustion. No wonder we have widespread mental illness and loneliness, right? It's isolating to constantly ask the nervous system to be sifting through these kinds of chaos. So when I come to the country, you can still hear a train or a truck once in a while out here, but especially in the winter when it's covered in snow and everything is so muted and insulated, that space for whiteness, peace, blankness, openness, light, the light reflecting off the snow, the sound reflecting off the snow, revealing the space that we all actually need to be soothed. So sound and light or sound and sight are pointing to these things that are right in front of us at all times. If I feel less chaotic in the country, it's probably because I'm absorbing less chaos. Totally. Wow. That really hits, honestly. Like, just because I have the ability to tune something out doesn't mean that it would be advantageous or good for me to do that. Like, <laughs> I just feel like cities are making us sick because we have so little control over our environment. I love humanity, <laughs> obviously. I love people, I love art and culture and music, and I even love chaos. I love living in a chaotic city like Montreal. And at the same time, as I grow older and wish for peace and wish for openness for myself. I don't need as much of the chaos. I don't need the chaos within me to be reflected by the world outside of me. I want the peace around me in my environment to imprint my internal world. Andrea's sound piece is titled, When You Listen, They Listen Back.
When you listen, they listen back. This isn't faith, this is trust. The more you ask, the more they'll answer. These are the anti-trees. They sit at the border between farm and forest. A gateway between hearth and wilderness, flanking a corridor for dancing, celebrating, and leaving. They are the guardians and the grandmothers and form a corridor up to the stargazing grove, the main artery to the woods and the old homestead. The more you ask, the more they answer. And when you listen, they listen back. There's quartz all over these lands. Big, rough boulders covered in moss and lichen. Small, smooth chunks nestled in the rock walls that farmers once used as boundary markers. I've seen a dome formed over this land, like a snow globe or a spider's egg sac. We are protected here, but not from ourselves. This place draws out our demons, puts us in a pot to boil and then sews us back up with spider silk. Stronger, more clear, able to withstand duress and turmoil. listen one way, you can listen always.
how can you be lonely when all the world is alive? How can you be lonely when all the world is family? lose the sweet things first. A stressed mother whose milk won't come in. The maple water stops to set when the earth doesn't freeze. It's almost gone even now, but no one wants to jinx it. But the delicate things were never meant to fight for their lives. the delicate things we are meant to care for. Butterflies and bees, the blossoms unpollinated will never pass infancy. If you can learn to listen one way, you can learn to listen all ways. Places and spaces are shared slowly by those who care for them. It's an unfolding. Permission gained, trust earned, a precious knowing. <sighs> but no matter where you are, you can get beneath it. Drop your awareness below the bedrock and root down. You can conjure heliotropism. Turn your face to the light. Let your hair stand on end, just like antenna, and be happy. Kind of Harmony is hosted and produced by Julia E. Dick and Amanda Harvey, with the generous support from the Canada Council for the Arts. This episode was edited by our production assistant, Laura Dickens, with mixing and mastering by Evan Vincent, project management by Christian Scott, graphic design by Mutual Design. A huge thanks to all our contributors for their generous involvement in this project. If you'd like to support this project and what we do, please follow us on Instagram or subscribe to our Patreon. <laughs>